Hey, listeners, get ready for episode two of our Between We and They series, originally released in October of 2019. We're rerunning the series one episode a week for all of July, and we'll be back in the fall with all new episodes. Enjoy. Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is part two of Between We and They, a school integration story. And if you haven't listened to the first episode yet, go do that before jumping into this episode. When we left Beth last time, her kids had just started at their new elementary school. Having left their highly resourced school that serves a disproportionately high number of white and privileged students, Beth now drives her kids across town to attend a school that mostly serves black and brown students. I spoke with Beth in September 2018, a month or so into school, and again near the end of October. While she had done some really deep thinking ahead of time about what this change might mean for her and her family, being in a new space is always different from thinking about being in a new space. And Beth was finding challenges in places she hadn't expected. So we rejoined Beth, neck deep in this new experience and trying to understand it, while the previous school remains a constant comparison presence. I mean, everything just feels different, and they're little tiny things, the pickup and drop-off, and the rules. It's a very rigid school, the uniforms, and the, the, the kids don't have a lot of freedom. You know, at the previous school, the kids, they, you know, they could walk the hallways by themselves with the permission of the teacher. You know, but there is none of that at this present school. There are a lot of rules, and um, I don't know. It's just something I'm noticing, and is it, is it damaging? No, it's not damaging. It's just different, that's all. My girls notice it, we talk about it, and it's fine. I I see stuff. I don't think there's an actual behavior chart, but I know the the dojo points that my girls are kind of, at least especially my younger one is kind of, she's not fixated, that's not the right word, but she's very interested in getting more points. Beth is talking about an app that some teachers use to reward students with points for exhibiting good behavior and take away points for undesirable behavior. It's not how I raise my girls. They just do stuff because they need to do it. And I ask them to do it or I tell them to do it. And that's how it goes, you know. So there's a lot of that. And the first week of school, my older one got candy from the teacher. I'm like, why? Why did you get candy? Because we did this. I'm like, all right. I mean, I don't know. Like, that's just a small part of their day. Like, I'm not raising them like that. And that's okay. Like, they they can be in school and do that. But they also know that I don't do that. And I'm not going to give them points or some. I'm not going to start some kind of chart. And I'm not going to, I'm just not going to do that. When I ask you to put your clothes away after I wash them, just do it. I don't know. Like that, is that really going to have that much of an influence on them? I notice it. It just doesn't feel like a big deal. But it really is going fine. It's just different. Beth is generally feeling okay about the differences with how the new school runs, but she's also seen some things that give her a little pause. I I did have a concern this week, (laughs) but it's not something that makes me want to run away or bury my head. It's just something for me to observe. You know, I went to a PTA meeting expecting to hear something about like, we have this much money we hope to do this. We would like to do this. We, that means we'd have to raise this much money for that. And there wasn't any anything like that. They, I, I, and I think it might be because they have a budget of zero right now. And they're really hoping to send their 25th graders on a field trip at the end of the year, graduating fifth graders. And they wanted, really wanted to do it last year, but they couldn't. So they had to sort of scale it down and go to someplace more local. 
But this year, you know, the parents, at least this PTA president parent, is really, she really wants these kids to go to this water park. Anyways, they don't, I don't think they have any, but I don't think they have any money, number one. And the field trip that they want to do, like, okay, I'm not being very articulate. It was just, it was just like, oh, my poor kid, for a moment. That's what it was. <sighs> this is very distasteful for, to me to say out loud that, yeah, it was, a, it's just this pang of like, am I depriving my kid? Am I depriving my kid? Because she won't get a field trip until maybe her graduating month. <laughs> if they can, you know, if we, they, whoever can raise the money. As Beth fumbles between they and we, she realizes that while the school year has started off well, there are going to be some things her daughters won't get in their new school. And while this leads to some reflection, her thoughts quickly turn back to her old school. You know, honestly, my, my second thought went immediately to the parents at the former school my girls were at and how annoyed, irritated, irate, indignant these parents felt that their kindergartners did not do a field trip yet. And this was in, I don't know, March or something. Really very angry. And I just thought, really? Are you kidding me? And at one point, my, my child came home and felt that I felt like she had learned something from these parents like, and was really mad that she didn't get a field trip. I was like, what? Hold on, girl. No, I do not ascribe to that belief that you deserve a field trip. My goodness, let alone three. No way. I'm not going to have you talking like that. I'm sorry, but that's not how we want to raise you. And I don't believe in that at all. Beth feels the weight of her daughters missing out on stuff like field trips at the new school because there's simply no budget for these extras. And yet, at their old school, she felt the weight of her daughters coming to expect things, like they were entitled to them. This, in fact, was one of the things that pushed Beth out of her old school. The sense of entitlement that her girls were starting to internalize is much harder to quantify than the number of field trips they would or wouldn't get. But the way her kids were learning to be in the world was much more important to Beth. And as she sat with these discrepancies, another feeling began to creep in. I, you know, so this is, this is, um, it's a little bit hard for me to articulate this because I feel like this is something about my classes and that I, I kind of don't, I don't understand yet. So it's, I feel like it's not going to be very clear, but after this PTA meeting, I I felt like it kind of broke my heart. This PTA has nothing. It has nothing. And it just kind of broke my heart. This is not a well-oiled machine. This PTA organization is a fledgling group of parents. It's just different. And yeah, my classism comes out. It just seeps out with like, oh, this poor group. You know, they don't have any money. This feeling of pity was real. The PTA started the year with $28 compared with upwards of $100,000 at the old school. But what do you do with that feeling? What does it mean to feel heartbroken about their small bank account? And what does it mean to refer to the PTA as they and not we? Beth still sits in a belief that what a PTA has is measured by how much money it has, that what a PTA is can be defined by its bank account. And that leaves her with feelings of pity. But instead of creating relationships, she's finding that pity creates distance. Well, it it puts me in a position of power and power over this person, I person, entity, whatever, I'm pitying, right? And this other person is powerless and has less and 
it's a pool of helplessness almost. It doesn't it doesn't serve anybody in the relationship. That's the thing. And that's what bothers me about it. Like it's not it doesn't serve me, it doesn't serve the other person. It's not a useful way to look at a relationship and it's not there's no honor in it. Like there's no there's just it feels a little bit disgusting to me, you know. And it's not yeah, and it's almost looking through. You look I'm gonna look through some somebody, look through somebody's individuality. Uh, this is getting very uncomfortable. <laughs> These feelings about the PTA make her uneasy. She's facing the truth that her view of the PTA stems from a place of disconnection, maybe with a touch of condescension. This bothers her, not only because she's seeing this in herself and recognizing it as ugly, but also because she doesn't know how to get beyond it, or even what beyond it could look like. It's this, I guess I'm just, I'm kind of grappling with, I, guess, I mean, ultimately I'm grappling with our privilege. I just think it's important for me personally to sort of grapple with my privilege as a half-white person, as someone who is wealthy. So, and I think part of that is like, what is this pity about? Why? Why? Where does this come from? Why do I? Why do I pity? And can it be something else? Can it more? You know, I need to understand the pity before I sort of, you know, try to change it, try to grow out of it. I, I don't know what the expression is. You know, it's easy for me to sort of go into like problem solving mode and, you know, think about it, brainstorm. But I think it's also important for me to sit with like, what is this like pity I feel? Like, I, I feel like I need to work through that and just, just sort of like dissect it a little bit. I think it's an important process for me personally, you know. And I hope in this process I don't do damage. And maybe I will and I hope I can be non-defensive and make repairs, you know, because I guess I'm not going to be perfect, but... I just, I want to do the least amount of damage as I can. Beth knows that integration can be complicated and that it often leads to white or privileged families claiming a larger voice in the school in a way that undermines equity. What does it look like to participate, to bring what you and your family might be able to offer and not do damage? This is what she was struggling with as she thought in particular about some of the connections her husband has. And has a lot of connections in the community with corporations, big businesses, small businesses. So could he leverage his connections and get donations or whatever? But, but you know, it's, it's we, we just don't want to, we don't want to come in with our big wallet kind of thing and anything like that. We don't want to give that kind of impression. But, but I do feel like that's something that we could help with. It just feels sticky. It feels a little bit sticky and uncomfortable to talk about. But this is not something that we want attention for. In fact, it's the opposite. If we, if some, if we do do something or bring in some donation or whatever, like this is not something we want recognition for at all. It's, it's the exact opposite. No, even if it is some kind of anonymous connection or, or donation, like it's somebody will know, right? But it's yeah. I mean, if we can help. Reckoning with the severe disparities between the schools, Beth knows that her privilege, unearned as it may be, affords her the ability to simply throw resources at the, quote, problem. And the school definitely needs additional resources. But she's trying to avoid a savior mindset, arriving to fix the school and be a hero. She knows that this would garner her and her family special advantages, even beyond those they might receive anyway. And it would do nothing to undermine the feeling of pity and the distance that feeling creates. Beth also recognizes that how she defines the school's needs might not be the same as how the school community defines its own needs. And to figure that out requires deeper, more meaningful relationships. 
I want to have a low profile at this school right now. I just, I just, I'm in a learning phase. I feel like I'm just, I kind of want to take things in. I'm not there to make suggestions. And at my previous school, we did this and blah, blah, blah. Like, I just want to hear. I just want to see what's happening. That's all. So Beth is trying to be thoughtful about building relationships instead of immediately jumping in and trying to fix the school, trying to get past pity to something more helpful and more meaningful. But building those relationships is easier said than done. I have had very, very minimal interaction with parents at this school because of how pickup and drop-off is, you know, set up. It's kind of a drive-by drop-off. So I still, you know, honestly, I still feel kind of disconnected. There isn't a lot of opportunities for parent crossover. Playdates, being a common thing in her former school, seemed like a natural step for her daughters and their new friends, and a way for Beth to start to build relationships with the parents at her school. But this, too, was complicated. This stepmother came to pick up her seven-year-old from my house yesterday. I said, you know, um, this is my address. I'm happy to bring your daughter home. She said, no, well, we, we can come pick up. So she pulled up, and I just kind of waited. Hey, come on in. And I was like, oh, see, did you find it okay? You know, I'm sorry. Like, did you have to drive far? And she said, yeah, we live 10 miles away from the school. I was like, oh, my God. She lives far from me. And she and then she's like, oh, but don't, you know, don't worry. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, no, you're good. You're good. She's like, I was driving over here. I'm like, oh, and she, it's not, oh, it's definitely a house. Like, this is kind of her stream of consciousness thinking that she was sharing. Oh, it's a house. She doesn't live in an apartment. She lives in a house. And she's like, I love your house. You know, like my big vaulted ceilings. And it was just like. I was like, yeah, come on in. And she's like, oh, we, you know, I'd love a house like this. I'm like, oh, what do I say? What do I say? Here, I'm going to showcase all that I have. Come on in. You know, like, oh, it just felt, oh, it just felt, I don't know what. It just felt bad. It just felt bad. At her old school, most of the families come from similar economic backgrounds, similar levels of wealth and privilege. And in many ways, that makes things much easier. The vast inequities that our country tolerates aren't quite so visible. Social interactions in this new setting are uncomfortable for Beth and can make it even harder to build the relationship she's hoping for. She's committed to working through this for the promise of deeper, more meaningful relationships on the other side, but is realizing there's a skill set involved that she, like most of us, has very little practice with. As Beth is grappling with the challenges of building relationships outside the classroom, her kids are also working on building relationships in the classroom. They've made friends and are finding their place in the school community. But again, it's not always easy. There's a a girl in my younger one's class who I, I believe she has significant problems. I have no idea. But based on what I have heard from my daughter and a couple of my daughter's classmates who have come over, you know, like this girl is... She really is struggling, and it, it plays out in, in school, in class, on an hourly basis, maybe even more frequently. Anyway, so it's a lot. And at one point, I asked my younger one, I said, are you scared? And she said, what do you mean? I said, are you scared she's going to hurt you? And she said, yeah. I said, you are? And she said, yeah, every day. I was like, all right. I said, has she hurt anybody? And she said, yeah, kind of. She'll like smack people or whatever. I said, has she ever done it to you? No. It's an issue. It's a management problem, right? I feel like I talk to my younger one about this particular girl almost daily. And it's about sort of helping her 
stand up for herself, find a voice for herself, set a limit, firmly set a limit, and also have compassion because I think something's going on with this girl. I feel like, I'm not saying that this is helpful for my daughter, but it's just, it's just life. It's a situation to manage, work around, you know, learn something about yourself, little seven-year-olds, you know, like it's about getting out of your comfort zone. You know, sometimes this stuff happens and it's okay. And I'm going to support you and the teacher's going to support you and also do her best to support this other girl. But, you know, just shit happens. And it's just about like dealing with it. Beth expected to see students struggling with behavior issues in this way. It's a familiar story and one often used by white and or privileged parents to explain why they couldn't consider desegregating their kids. Students living in poverty, exposed to trauma, disruptive behaviors. Beth has heard this a lot. And when she thinks of this student, she finds herself feeling that narrative. But this narrative assumes that these kinds of behaviors are inextricably linked with poverty. That you can know something about an individual by their circumstances, or that you can know something about a school by the circumstances of its student body. While Beth tries to avoid overly broad and racist tropes to make sense of what's happening in her younger daughter's classroom, she also doesn't want to gloss over the very real and shameful effects of racism and poverty. Of course, her old school wasn't immune to these issues, but the response was quite different. So, and I'm sort of in this comparing mode, like, and I recall problem kids in the kindergarten class when my daughter was at the old school and how the parents were organizing and the emails that it went around and the attorneys that were talking to the school board and they wanted to get these kids kicked out. And But it was for the benefit of the kid. This kid needs more services. Kind of, I was like, oh my God, are you kidding me with this BS? Like, come on. We know why you want these kids kicked out of school. And the three kids that they wanted out of the school, they were not white. And they all ended up leaving. They all went to different schools. So anyways, I just compare like this one girl management problem in my younger one's class versus like other problems in the other school, like how the parents are dealing with it or not dealing with it. I'm not going to make a big deal about this girl in in my daughter's class. I'm just not going to do it. The principal's on it. The teacher's on it. Like my daughter says she's scared, but she's fine. She comes home from school. like, yeah, how's school? Good. She had a good day. Like, I'm not going to. The teacher and the principal are on it. Like, what what more can I do? Beth looks at the ways that parents at the former school simply got rid of the, quote, problems, how they worked to protect their space. And she also sees how those five- and six-year-olds were treated as if the problems are their problems and not problems of structural inequity and race and poverty, as if these are not our problems. For Beth, the situation is one that she's helping her daughter learn how to manage, not teaching her how to avoid. There's no question that growing up with fewer resources and more opportunity barriers affects people in powerful ways. And sometimes these manifest as what we tend to call behavior problems. But how we define behavior problems is often based in racist assumptions. Our educational system understands the behaviors of black and brown kids differently than white kids. And while white privileged concentrated schools may see fewer problems grounded in poverty and racism, That doesn't mean that those schools don't also have problems. We might not call them behavior issues. Maybe it's just a spirited child expressing her creative choices. But white and privileged kids in white and privileged schools behave in plenty of ways that are disruptive and hurtful. Kids are not only treated very differently, but the very definition of behavior problem is curated by race and class. In coming to terms with this behavior issue, 
the differences between Beth's old school become harder to ignore. She finds herself mostly avoiding the topic of the new school with her friends from the former one. And I guess the reason why I don't talk about it is because I don't want to do the compare and contrast thing with the friends that I have in the previous school. I just don't want to do that. It's going to bring up a lot of uncomfortable conversations. And ultimately, it's going to bring up a conversation about values and different style of parenting. Because ultimately, I feel like that's what it comes down to for me, a discussion about values. And I'm not sure that I have the language right now to sort of diplomatically discuss that. And I guess what I'm talking about is, in, a, in its essence, like sort of resource hoarding and how sick of it I am, really disgusted by it. And I think that needs to be on the table. But I don't, I'm, I feel very kind of fired up about that at the moment. And I have for a while. So I don't, I don't know that I have the language to, to diplomatically discuss it. As Beth is avoiding conversations that she feels unprepared to have, she is hearing about the fourth grade class at the old school, the one that her oldest daughter would have been in. Of course, I have friends who are remain in the old school. So I do hear from them that the fourth grade homework is a lot every night. And my fourth grader has reading every night. And that's basically it. And so I started to wonder, like, hmm, do I need to do something? Should I supplement? I just organically don't have it in me to sort of like be a teacher at the end of the day. <laughs> I just, I just not, I feel like it's not my realm. It's not my forte. And then to nag my girls about one more thing, like, I don't know, like, do I get them on started on Khan Academy? Yeah, I set it up. I'll admit I set it up. Do they do it? Maybe 20 minutes a week. It's obviously not a big priority for me, but is that I'm just being lazy? I don't know. Like, should I try to keep up with the comp, you know, the more complex spelling words for second and fourth grade that the former peers are doing? I don't know. I think I'm still honest. I notice it. It's a difference. And I'm trying to figure out like what my role is. Do, do I supplement? Do I need to? Should I? I'm not sure. I guess that's the bottom line. So it's a difference that I notice, and I'm not sure how to handle it at this point. It's early in the school year, and it's hard to know in any given moment how to evaluate the instruction her kids are getting. And while assessing this is tricky anywhere, the former school was labeled a, quote, good one, and so the sense of risk there felt much lower. But Beth is wondering, are her daughters getting less rigor at the new school? Are they learning less? Was this decision somehow depriving her kids of the education they need? Her kids seem to be learning something every day, but when comparisons to her old school come up, it creates some anxiety. So Beth checks in with their oldest daughter. You know, Friday night, my older daughter, nine, she's nine and a half. She was so, so energized and really wanted to tell me about her week. And she basically told me that they had a program this past week for the fourth graders. She learned about you know, school segregation and how the black kids had to go to one school and the white kids were going to another school and then they integrated and my daughter which was I mean she just kind of blew my mind she remembered Little Rock Nine and she remembered Melba Beals with her learning difficulties it was just shocking so it made such an impact on her she said Man, Melba Beals and what she went through and you know these other girls like firebombed her and then while she was in the bathroom and she wasn't heard and and so she, she finished by saying it was the best week of her school life. And I, I was just, I was floored. And then later she was telling me about Frederick Douglass. I'm like, 
you learned about Frederick Douglass? And she's like, yeah, I'm an abolitionist. I'm like, you remember that word? I don't know, it was just, it was just great. I just thought, this is what's important. All the other stuff isn't important, you know? It truly isn't, it's just not important. It just blew my mind. And at that moment, I thought, I'm not gonna worry about this anymore. I am not depriving my kids at all. It's the exact opposite. This is exactly what I want her to learn about, among many things, but this is exactly what I want her to learn. I never learned about the Little Rock Nine in, in school, never. It was incredible. It was, I was so grateful for the, the time and the interaction and just, and that the programming was there, you know, that she's being taught about this. Beth sees her daughter making connections between this history and her own experiences at the two very different schools. This wasn't just some history lesson, but rather a story about real people whose struggles and legacies are connected to these schools and being felt by these fourth graders. And this made Beth realize that some of what they were getting at the new school mattered more than what they had gotten at the old school. And while that brought Beth comfort, it also pushed her further from her old friends. I'm really struggling with that right now, actually, because it does feel like a moral choice. Right? It doesn't feel, I mean, it, and so what do, how do I, what do I do with that? How do I relate to the people who are not making the same choice? How do I talk to them? How do I talk to them in a way that isn't offensive? I, I feel like the way I have dealt with this lately is I've just kind of stepped back, not, not way back, but taken a step back because I feel a little protective about my experience, my girls' experience at the new school and my, my experience with the parents. And I even said this to a friend. I said, you know, I'm not, I'm, I appreciate you asking me about school. And it, it means a lot that you're asking. And I said, I think, I'm, I think I'm just not ready to talk about it. I think it's so new. And I think I haven't figured out the words. And I think I haven't, I think I'm just not ready to talk about it. So she just sits in the discomfort the uncertainty, and the growing isolation from her old friends. And while it's hard, when she thinks about what really matters for her kids... This is absolutely not a sacrifice as I see it. I actually feel like, and this this feels sticky for me to say and a little bit distasteful, but I actually feel like I'm doing right by my kids. Sheltering them in a white upper middle class community is not doing right by them. This is not the world. This is not reality. This is not our community. This is not our city. It's just not real. This is a bubble, and it's a very uncomfortable bubble for me to be in, to live in, to, to function in. I can do it. Don't get me wrong. And I feel like I have, I have like 90% mastery in this bubble. I can do it. But I want my girls to expand their experiences and their mind and their viewpoints. You know, I, I want them to do well in math. I want them to read well. I want them to know about science and social studies and all that stuff. But is this experience going to make or break them? Is this going to help them get a job when they're 20 or 30 or, you know, like, is that is that what this is about? Like, there's something, I'm, I'm aiming for something else. I don't care that there's no fall carnival and that there's no festival at the end of the year with jumpy slides. All the, you know, like, I don't care about that, really. I want them to know, like, there are other people in, in our city, in our community, just two miles down the road, who look different, who talk different, who act different, who listen to different music. And it's cool, and it's different, and some of it's not cool, some of it you don't like, and some of it you do like, and it's just different, that's all. 
I want them to see things. I want them to experience something different than just white, rich culture. Beth is clearly grateful for this experience, but is also aware of the challenges in talking about this part. It's distasteful, sticky to say that there are things that she thinks she and her family are getting from this move. It risks sounding too much like opportunity hoarding, but ignoring the good she is getting from this experience and pretending that this is all for social justice doesn't feel right either. Beth feels like she has to say all the things at all the same time. How can she talk about the benefits they're getting and the way she's living her values all at once? So, as she settles into the new school, getting the kids' routines down, finding the quickest route across the interstate, maintaining that balance and how she talks about this is getting even trickier. It may even be getting harder to believe in. So here's the thing. I'm beginning to feel like maybe this is a cop-out decision. Like, everything's fine. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I made the wrong decision. I should have sent them to the two school. That's a little bit farther. Like, maybe four isn't low enough. Or what am I missing? Like, maybe what's the problem? What is it? So then I just I'm feel, I have a little guilt now. And I still have concerns about my older daughter and her learning difficulties. And, you know, like, is she going to get what she needs? And of course, she's going to get what she needs because... I'm getting it for her, you know? She doesn't get it at school, it's fine. I can get I can get her what she needs, and whatever. She is getting what she needs at school. So it's been great, and I feel like a cop-out. Beth went looking for a school that wasn't serving a disproportionately white and privileged student body. And due to structural racism in our school districts, this is also likely to be a school that was poorly rated. While it seems a bit absurd on its face, Beth was seeking out a, quote, bad school, and the one she found, at least on paper, had many of the characteristics of what we think of as a, quote, bad school. And yet, now that she's there and part of the school, it doesn't actually feel that bad. Maybe, instead of finding a truly bad school, Beth just lucked into an aberration, a school that hasn't made it onto the white, privileged lists of good schools, but will soon. If this school is an outlier, a fluke, is she actually pushing back on segregation, on opportunity hoarding, or is she just an early adopter, one of the lucky ones who found the, quote, hidden gem before the rest of her privileged peers? She struggles with feeling that what she anticipated isn't actually her experience. You know, I guess I anticipated seeing things that I really didn't like, and I would really have to just, like, you know, do a lot of self-talk around, (laughs) like... I don't know. Like, I don't like the candy at school. The principal gives it out. But, oh, well, like, I can't stress about that. I really can't. So there's nothing for me to worry about. There's just nothing for me to worry about. And I was anticipating, like, having this uncomfortable feeling. That's what I, I was just anticipating that. The assumptions that she had led her to believe that there would be really intolerable things going on at the school. The candy handouts aren't her favorite. The strictness of the school is different. But these things don't feel like deal breakers. Beth expected some existential crisis, some shocking or grievous things that would challenge her commitment. But that's not what she found. And it makes her wonder why she expected those things in the first place. So I think part of this is like for me to look at my internalized racism, you know, because I breathe the same toxic air that everyone else does. And so I didn't have any fears like, oh, my God, safety and drugs. And that I feel like is ridiculous. The toxic air, the smog that says that schools serving disproportionately high percentages of black and brown kids, and especially those who are growing up in poverty, that they're going to be rife with awfulness just didn't seem to be a reality. She had moved past the racist stereotypes about violence and drugs before showing up, but she still expected bigger challenges and wasn't finding them. 
Is her school an anomaly, or were the narratives she was working from inherently flawed? She just expected this to feel like more of a sacrifice. Well, not only am I not sacrificing, I'm living my values. So there's not, there's just, it's not a sac. there is no sacrifice. There is no sacrifice. And so, two months into the school year, Beth is feeling good about her decision. She's grateful for the experiences her kids are having and the things they are learning. There are challenges, just as there were at her old school, but at least for her kids, she doesn't feel like this is a sacrifice. For Beth personally, there have been some real surprises. Feeling like the school might not be bad enough is unexpected, and she's working through her feelings of pity. She's also struggling to find her place in the new school while feeling increasing distance from people at their old one. In part three, we'll catch up with Beth later in the school year. Has she come to terms with her pity? How is she feeling about the new school community? Is she still referring to the PTA as they? And where does she stand in the neighborhood community? Where does Beth feel like she belongs? Who is her we after making this move? If you're enjoying this series, please share it with a friend. Leave us a rating or review to help other people find it. And consider donating to this all-volunteer project. Go to integratedschools.org and click the donate button. Music in this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Beth for sharing so openly and honestly with us. And as always, we are grateful to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. Thank you.